something like this for 24 long years. You know, they're not people who just rush out on the street and brandish signs. You know, they, they're quite moderate. But when you get moderate women angry, you really get them angry. And the offer that came back, there was a little bit of a, well, they're not going to like this. And unanimously, everyone was like, strike, strike, strike. Because we knew that we had to make a big message. Mr Hipkins says he's disappointed with that response and fired a warning shot that going on strike won't get teachers any more money. I've just got these amazing memories of turning back and just seeing this massive line of people that you couldn't get to the end of. My assumption was that the government would just get its act together and we'd resolve it quite quickly. Why is a Labour education minister staring down the barrel of the greatest strike in New Zealand's history? We'll never experience anything like that again in our lifetime. I can't understate the power of a colleague talking to another colleague about a campaign or an issue. It's just really important that our story is told. Hello and welcome back to Blueprints, the podcast about political strategies from one of 200. This is going to be the final episode in our first series, which has been about campaigns. And this episode, well, it's a big one. The Kuwaitawa campaign culminated in a mega strike on Wednesday, the 29th of May, 2019, when primary teachers, secondary teachers, and principals all went out on strike together. It was Aotearoa, New Zealand's biggest ever industrial action in education and led to a vastly improved government offer that gave them long overdue pay rises, pay equity schemes, and commitments to address the systemic lack of teachers and overwork. The campaign strategy had three key parts, an historic coalition of the entire education profession, a clear narrative that focused on the key issues, and an organizing approach to support, build, and utilize its biggest resource, namely, tens of thousands of union members with widely and deeply felt discontent about the state of their working lives. We spoke with primary teacher and current president of the Primary Teachers Union, NZEI, Liam Rutherford, who was on the negotiating team, campaign director at NZEI, Stephanie Mills, and Auckland-based primary teacher and union delegate, Carly Oliveira, to find out how 50,000 people won themselves a better working life. Stephanie started off by telling us how she came to be the director of the campaign. My initial activism in my life was in the peace movement and also in the anti-tour movement in the 1980s. That was kind of the start of my adulthood. I worked for Greenpeace for 13 years in a range of roles as campaign director. I ended up starting at NZDI on a part-time basis as the head of the communications team. And then over the years, the position sort of evolved. So yeah, so in 2015, 2016, I was director of campaigns effectively involves taking what we hear from members and designing campaigns that are both in the air and on the ground to support organising and growth in terms of activism and recruitment. Yeah. Before we jump into the story of the campaign, it's worth quickly explaining the structure of the union and its membership and how it interacts. There are union staff, like Stephanie. So we kind of conceptualise that we're working. Staff are not responsible for making decisions, we're responsible for executing decisions. So we have the National Executive and Te Reo which is the peak Māori Council, if you like. The National Executive consists of 
13 members, including three members of Te Reo Ariari. The other members are all directly elected at annual conference every two years, so there's usually a two-year term. One of those elective members on the national executive during Kuratai Tua was Liam. Kia ora koutou, uh, call Liam Rutherford Takawangawa. I was on the national executive and I was a um, classroom teacher at an intermediate in Palmerston North and I was asked to uh, lead the negotiating team for the primary teachers. It meant I ended up with roles at various different levels of the campaign. During this period, so we were often caucusing with national exec because of some new development or because we needed a steer on, shall we do this, shall we do that? Our field staff, who as a part of a 10-year transition, Friends of the Eye, have been moving away from servicing members' needs towards building member leaders. And one of those member leaders... Was Carly. My name's Carly Oliveira. I have been teaching for 21 years this year, so a long time, more than 15 years in the classroom. <laughs> I'm a classroom teacher, a team leader, and when Kua Taitewa was rolling on the ground, I was a new entrant year one teacher, so I had little five-year-olds to deal with. The other thing that I'm aware of as well is that in such a large-scale campaign, different people notice different things. And so I guess that's a way of saying that what I'm sharing is is kind of what I saw and what I felt uh, along the way, but I'm sure there'll be different views out there. The intensity of feeling that led to the Kuratai Tawa campaign grew during the 2010s, when alongside wage increases below the rate of inflation, the national government tried to implement two key things which deepened the discontent among the profession and produced an organised reaction and resistance. One was they attempted to increase class sizes and that is, that is like a red to a bull for um, teachers and principals. And I remember the whole thing only lasted about two weeks because we had members out on the streets holding rallies in non-contact time. And it was great. And uh, so those were those kind of first tasters of where uh, you're looking at your colleagues around the staff room and they're like, yep, we're up for this, let's get out there, let's go and have the signs that say took for your support. In 2016, we had a big fight because Hekia Parata, the minister at the time, wanted to impose bulk funding, basically. And that was awesome because that was something that we had in common with our secondary school colleagues. And so we organised these paid union meetings around the country. Because we won that campaign quite quickly, it really gave people a taste for working with the whole sector, working with PPDA and, and um, NZDI together. And instead of focusing them on kind of small boutique ones, we actually wanted massive rallies of teachers and principals from primary and secondary coming into the main city centres because we knew it wasn't just about the discussion amongst the profession inside the meeting. It was actually about the media excitement that we could create in and around that. Thousands of people signed postcards and petitions and really kind of getting people galvanised again. And so they ended up backing down from that bulk funding proposal. But those were kind of two tasters along the way as we were heading into this campaign that that really started to cement our thinking that that round of collective agreement was going to be one that we drove really hard. These reactive mini-campaigns in defence of a status quo that they already weren't happy with were really important for building the capacity of teachers to organise themselves, resist what they didn't want, and begin to cement the idea that maybe they could proactively campaign for things that they did want. Because back in 2009... When we first went on and took 
school buses around the country on our national standards tour, which was to oppose national standards. I remember stopping in the main street of Kawakawa on one of the first days of the tour with the national president at the time and hopping off outside the winds office and saying, OK, everybody, let's go and get petitions signed and, you know, talk to the locals and then we'll go up to the school. And, and the president at the time said, I've never asked anybody to sign a petition before. So that was 2009. And people had not had to sort of fighting quite the same way through that previous period of Labour government. And so if you go back to um, 2011, when we settled that collective agreement, there wasn't a sense of feeling amongst teachers that everything going on in schools were right and this was just going to be a normal wage round. But we were dealing as a country with the outcomes of the global financial crisis. And so there was a lot of talk at the day around how can you give cash out to the public service with all of this was so many people losing jobs and on the whole teachers and principals as a group of members accepted that and then the next collective agreement the sense across the members is is that they actually still weren't interested in industrial action despite the fact that we were really starting to get that sense around the overall valuing of teachers wasn't being met but there wasn't that hunger across the members and so uh, that collective agreement again, didn't settle for something that people would have come away saying, saying what we've agreed here actually values the role of teachers and principals within this country. And what were the issues affecting teachers? Here's Carly to explain. Over the past 10 years, national standards has had a huge impact upon teaching and learning. It has increased our, it increased our workload and it really changed the way that we had to do things without a lot of without without a lot of input. Mm. This led to teachers being stressed out, to teachers leaving the profession in droves. So we had this huge problem of retaining our teachers. We had a teacher shortage that was horrendous. So some days we wouldn't be able to get relievers, and I would have fifty five-year-olds in my class. Mm-hmm. And we did, you know, we did the best that we could do, but all of these things were compounded by the policies that were put in place and put over the top of us by the national government. Mm. And it just kept being built on. And the curriculum became more crowded. There was less time to do the fun stuff and more, more time. And we had to spend more time doing assessment and reporting and crunching numbers and telling, saying whether children were at, below or above. Mm. And it was soul crushing as a teacher. There was also the issue of pay. So pay is, is kind of always an interesting issue for teachers. I mean, they're, you know, they kind of sit in the lower end of the professional group and the upper end of kind of working people. So that the the pay is not a question of necessarily can I pay my bills, but the question that was really strong was how do we get more people into the profession and keep more people in the profession? To give you a concrete idea of what this was like in practice, here's part of John Campbell's report from one of the strike days. How much do you earn? I am on $58,000. And how long have you been teaching for? Five years. You have a degree, obviously. Yes, I do have a degree. Of course you do. And what's your rent? Do you know how much you pay a week? Yeah, I pay $550 a week in rent. So what's that? Starting to head towards $28,000 a year. So yeah. Roughly, yeah. Ha- roughly half your salary. Yeah, half my salary. In fact, just more, for rent. more yeah. than half your uh, after-tax salary, right? Correct. Yes. How long have you been teaching for? Over ten years. And how much do you earn? I earn seventy-one thousand. So you're top of the pay scale, aren't you? That's it. That's it. That's all I can get. And um, 
I've got three children and they're all under seven. So we're still at home with them, so I'm at work and my husband's uh, at home with my kids. So your household income is $71,000 yeah. in Auckland. Yeah. So how are you getting by? Uh, we struggle. There's struggle. We pay rent, so it's really hard to make sure that we've got heaps of food on the table. And if, if I'm probing too much and I'm starting to upset you, you just tell me to bugger off. But do you ever think you'll own a home? No, no, no. How much do you earn? A pittance. I'm earning probably less than $18 an hour at the moment. As a teacher aid? Yep. And teacher aids are desperately needed, right, to help Absolutely. with children who need extra assistance? Absolutely. Like, these guys, are, we're their right-hand man, and, you know, we'll do anything for them. We deserve better. The teachers deserve better. The kids deserve better. You're earning less than $18 an hour? About that, yeah. It's not a lot. How do you go from, we're working too much for not enough money, our classes are too full and I'm too tired to be my best self and there just aren't enough teachers. The lucky thing about primary teachers is that we obviously have our NZO. Our union is us, it's our teachers. We're not having anybody else make decisions for us. So we start with the grumblings at school. Then people like me who are a worksite rep go to bigger meetings within our area and we grumble some more. And then that goes back to National Executive, which is across the whole country. And then they say, okay, well, what are we going to do next? How can we address what's happening in education right now? And so this happened, you know, this was happening for two and a half years previous to this collective agreement coming, coming up to term. Everyone came down to the fact that, one, we needed to be paid more money for what we were doing. We work extremely hard and that unified us. So all the conversations that you have anecdotally in the classroom or with your colleagues after school, it centered around, oh my gosh, how many hours did you do this week? And we did things like, you know, tallying our hours and sending them to our MPs. We wrote letters in team meetings to to local MPs, to ministers of parliament and sent them. We sent postcards by the hundreds. So there was this this, this momentum of pressure. We looked for those kind of precursors around that power base starting to shift because when we start to see that coming through through more strongly is when we start to think, oh, okay, the, the membership might want industrial action as a way of sending their message. I mean, people were tired. I wouldn't say that people were like, you know, ready to stand on the streets and march in the way that they were by 2018, 2019. And so when Labour got in, people had really high expectations that a lot of the issues in the system are going to be solved very quickly. And for good or ill, that didn't quite happen. <laughs> Now's the time to build a better, fairer future for New Zealand. They will try to convince you not to rock the boat. But we can do better. Better healthcare. Better schools. You know, I always say primary teachers are a broad church. They don't all vote Labour. You know, they're, they're largely female, well-educated, articulate women by and large. They're not people who just rush out on the street and, and brandish signs. You know, they, they're quite moderate. But when you get moderate women angry, you really get them angry. And if you keep getting them angry, then they get really angry. And I think that's what it, what it built up through, through those years with the National Party. And I think Labour didn't really understand how to respond because they, I think they thought we were friends. And, and teachers will say that. They'll say, we're we serve the public. They feel they serve the public, not the government, which is quite different from being a public servant in the state sector. Yeah, they don't feel like they serve the Minister of Education. 
So there was deep and growing unhappiness that had built over the previous decade. Teachers had had to react and resist the implementation of things they thought would harm their work and the education sector. But what was the strategy? How did they plan to use their resources to build the power they needed to shift the whole government? Here's Stephanie breaking down the idea of strategy first. I mean, I think that strategy doesn't exist on its own. I mean, first of all, you have to have an analysis of power and of your environment. You have to be really clear about what your goal is. And, and I mean, we say here, like people don't get out of bed for a 1% pay increase. People want People want hope and they want a big hairy goal, whether that's pay equity or whether that's the living wage. They want something positive that they see as a solution and it's that's big enough that it's worth it's worth putting all the, the work in that really is required to make change. So I guess that's the first thing is being really clear about your goal. The strategy for me is it's fundamentally, you know, how you align and build your collective resource, whether that's people and or other things, to make change. And it can be really complex and you can have multi-layered strategies, you know, or it can be very simple. And for us, the strategy for Kua was quite simple. It was about capturing and converting the frustration and anger that members felt into collective action. And that was that was fundamentally the strategy. You could dress it up with all the other stuff, but that's fundamentally what it was. And it was a strategy that, that, that we would, we talked about with members. It wasn't a strategy that was sort of like on a piece of paper in a drawer. We had brainstorming sessions around that feedback and feed forward in terms of what were we up for. And unanimously, everyone was like, strike, strike, strike. <laughs> because we knew that it would hit the hardest. And we were sick of kind of mucking around. Well, my, t- my school was very, very pro-strike because we knew that we had to make a big message. We understood that it was going to make an impact on our parents and our families, but we had to kind of put ourselves first because quite often we don't. When mapping out the negotiation period, there were two key parts to the strategy. Firstly, a plan for an expected escalation of momentum which as Stephanie said to me, is basically a core strategy that almost all campaigns need to plan for. But in this case, it needed to happen for multiple reasons, as Liam explains. And so we wanted to have an escalating strategy over time because that would allow us to build those member leaders. But we also were worried about if we went too hard too quickly, while we were confident members would go, we would worry about them losing confidence in NZDI because... Because where do you go for your second action if your first action is huge? That probably the kind of peak event was going to be a joint strike by the PPTA and NZDI, because that would be like the first and only, you know, so in history sort of thing. So, you know, potentially sort of 50,000 teachers or whatever it is on the streets on one day. So, like, we weren't going to be able to go past that as big, right? Because that was mega. So, uh, we couldn't do that first, <laughs> not only because the PPDA hadn't got into bargaining yet, but so it was really a case of like, what what can we do that maintains momentum, increases pressure, keeps members engaged and like ready to do it and that they can see the purpose of it, you know, like, because there's no point in asking people to do things when they don't really understand why. And secondly, a deliberately narrower focus on the issues that they were going to discuss 
so that all the energy could flow to what was deeply and widely felt few most important issues. Normally we would come with a list of 30 specific claims, some of them are relatively expensive, some of them are relatively cheap. But because this was so much about three core issues, we asked members to say the dinner allowance or the transport allowance, can you please put Mm. that to the side? Because actually the only message we want the ministry, the government and public to hear is that this round of negotiations is around uh, valuing teachers' time and learning support. And we know that they are expensive claims, but the option of not doing it is crisis in education. And so in those paid union meetings in the lead up to claims development, that was where we were talking about this strategy and putting in the minds of members that this isn't going to be a fast round of collective Mm. agreement bargaining, that there's a genuine possibility of industrial action here. And that is why we need a focused set of claims. And so that was that kind of building blocks Mm. towards the overall strategy we had. If you remember back to episode five, when Max outlined how he thought strategy has two pillars, political and organisational. For NZEI, with a membership in the tens of thousands, a cohesive organisational strategy was probably essential to a functioning campaign. Another way we spoke about the campaign was what we called a tight, loose, tight model, where we, we wanted to be very tight at the top around what our strategic direction were. And we knew that it was if we could build on members' angst and frustration and turn that into collective action, And then uh, the loose part was allowing local communities around the country to work out how they wanted to bring that to life. The final type was us wanting to hold local communities um, accountable to what they were going to deliver in line with that top level uh, strategy. And so we were encouraging the diversification of how people were going to build that collective action locally. And we also um, spoke uh, at length around this Marae model which we wanted members to understand that uh, when you are building a large-based campaign, there has to be a role for everybody. Uh, like on the marae, it's not just the person doing the kōrero on the pai pai. There's actually heaps of background operations that keep the marae running and that all of our members, we didn't need just the people speaking in paid union meetings because mm. as somebody sitting around the negotiating table, you knew that it wasn't your clever arguments and examples happening at the negotiating table that were going to put more money in. There was no secret set of words that you could say that all of a sudden money was going to start flowing in. (laughs) This was actually about how do we shift the voters of the country to that sense of crisis within education so that uh, the government of the day will fold and uh, deliver the money that we needed. But, you know, we're also a a well-resourced union. We've built up a campaign team and a big and a relatively big comm communications team for a union of our size. And we have branches and networks in every place in New Zealand. We still have 150 or so branches, Comedy Pacifica, Aranui Tōmua, in most communities. And that's a huge asset. So we started looking at what was our current campaign capacity across the organisation and we knew we weren't going to win it unless we could increase that. We were realistic around the fact that you didn't have to 18 months out have the army that you were going to need but we were aware that if we couldn't build that army over time we were never going to get there. Let's look at their narrative because with a campaign taking place all over the country engaging with all kinds of media involving such a diverse group of people 
how do you create a clear set of messages and stories that will build together and create a distinct narrative? One that continues to inspire members internally, one which reaches out into the community and mobilizes support, and one that articulates thoroughly enough the sense of crisis within the education sector. So we were thinking about the kind of the, the thirds model. We were always going to have a group of members and supporters that absolutely loved what we were doing. There'd be a group that would go either way and then there would be a group that would be counter. And so we were always looking at That's that middle group around whether or not we were capturing them at the right end of the spectrum. We knew that if we could ground this in what was in the best interests of children, that we were always going to be on really firm footing. There's something um, special about being involved in education where actually the changes that you want to see come hand in hand in what's in the best interests of children. Hmm. So some people felt that we would only win it industrially. And some people felt that if we won it industrially and lost public support, we would lose politically so that we absolutely had to have public and political support. So I think both were true, you know. I mean, we knew, for example, that for parents and the, and the community more widely, how the education system works for children and their learning is the key issue, not how much teachers are paid. And I think that also matched many of our members' feelings that they, they're really comfortable talking about why things need to be better for kids and why they need more teacher aids or why they need more release time to plan or, in fact, why teachers need to be paid better so that more, more people come into teaching. They don't particularly want to talk about the money or the percentage or the dollar. The public message was around teachers actually needing time. We played with the time thing. And, and actually, that was something that our members really like. They're very creative with these ideas. So it started off, it's time, because people were saying, we just need some more time. We need time to, to plan. We need time to spend with this kid. So time was really important. And then it's time was it's time to address this. And kōtaitawa means the time has arrived, or it's you know it's time. Time for our teachers to teach in their classrooms. Time for our principals to lead their schools. We need time to teach. So we need more time to teach. We need more and time, it's time to lead. To fix this. We need time to teach. We need time to lead. There were two key groups of people: the NZEI and PPTA the Secondary Teachers' Union, needed to keep on side. Parents and each other. As we've heard already, the campaign ended with both teaching unions out on strike, which has never happened before. So how on earth did they do that? Well, we, I mean, we've been in lockstep with the PPTA in terms of the negotiation cycle for a long time, and, and we have that parity of the pay scale. And so there's no... You know, teach, a teacher is a teacher, that's our view. From our end, there was absolutely a desire to be in lockstep with the PPTA. You know, on the basis that collectively we could have greater impact. We had probably more experience in the public campaigning and communication side. And in fact, initially in 2016, when we did the bulk funding campaign and we had these big kind of lollipop signs that said, you know, stop bulk funding and da da da. And some of the PPTA senior people were a bit like, well, our members don't do signs, you know. But then when we got to the Michael Fowler Centre or wherever it was where these big rallies were having, like everybody was like, yeah, I want to sign. So they have some expertise and strengths in some places and some areas and, and we've got some complementary strengths as well. And that was something we definitely felt that that would work to everybody's advantage. Having a shorter collective agreement time back in 2014-15 so that we could actually set the agenda to be around time and workload and pay and learning support was really important. 
because by the time the secondary teachers and principals started their campaign, uh, NZDI members had already been on strike. And the sense around the uh, short list of really clear issues was already out there within the public. And we were really pleased that secondary came along and said, um, yep, we want to be a part of that campaign. And so all of a sudden, they were going through their own um, internal processes with their members around claims development and getting their first offer rejected. And there was these there were these conversations going on across the uh, two union leaderships around, well, should we start to do some stuff together? And so you had this absolute clash of cultures emerge when we decided to do joint paid union meetings. PPTA tend to be quite rule-driven and rigid. It's very, very formal voting. But whereas I had described that NZDI paid union meetings were all about waving colourful lollipop signs, but the sense that you got from both memberships afterwards was that this is awesome to see the education sector united. Naturally enough, if you're considering going on strike as a teacher, you want the parents who send their kids to your school to support you. As Liam and Carly have said, at the end of the day, what's best for teachers is best for kids, but a strike is still a disruption to the lives of parents who no doubt have plenty of their own stresses at work and at home, so they couldn't take their support for granted. It needed to be earned, and they did that at two levels. The union conducted frequent focus grouping to ensure they weren't moving too far away from broader public sentiment. And then on the ground, teachers simply told their stories face-to-face with their students' parents. I almost broke it down, and I, I did things like talk to them about how what my hourly rate was. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talked about how many hours a week I did. I talked about the fact that I'm here at 7 and I don't leave until 4.30 most days. I talked about the fact that I then go home and then do an hour or two of work, two or three nights consistently a week. I think that was, that was part of the conversation. Everyone works hard, we understand that. But we're not being paid our worth and we've got to be paid as professionals. You know, we're trained teachers and we are professionals and we, are, we, we have this amazing job ahead of us. So as soon as you start talking about the children and that it's not just about the money, and I think that was key. It's not actually about the money, it's actually about the survival of the profession. I want young 20-year-olds coming into the job and staying in the job. I want teachers like me to be worth something. So it was really, if you talk from your truth and from your point of view and your work, your work hours and all of that stuff, it was easy to talk to parents and easy to engage them because they could understand and they could see, you know, if they were picking their kid up and there was 50 kids in the class, they were like, what? I said, well, there's no relievers because we can't can't retain and we can't recruit because we're not paid enough. And so that coalition building was really important for us because we knew that when it got to the on the streets demonstrations that that the numbers that were going to turn out wouldn't just be teachers and principals they were going to be supportive parents. Obviously everyone was a little bit nervous of having to strike. Mm. Striking is a big deal for teachers. We don't take that decision lightly and we had to give parents notice and so you're having to have those conversations hey remember that we're not going to be here is your child coming do we need to look after them and we did that for the first couple and then we created a few feathers because we actually said we're not actually running any school care Mm. your child is going to have to go to work with you Mm -hmm. or whatever because we needed to draw that line in the sand so those conversations with parents some people really enjoyed some people found really difficult and some you had some you had some pushback 
And it depends, I suppose, on the teacher whether you felt comfortable pushing back to that and having a robust discussion about mm -hmm. it or whether you didn't. And you could easily step away. There was no pressure. Mm -hmm. But I was quite openly, look, this is what it's come to. Yeah. The government's pushed us here. We've got no collective agreement. Mm -hmm. We're not being covered by anything. And did you... <laughs> Sorry. That's, so over there, but that's the last one. <laughs> this is what Carly used to deal with a million times a day. <laughs> what were we talking about? There's no prizes for guessing where I spoke to Carly. Looking back at campaigns like Kua Tai Tiwa, it's kind of easy to sometimes think it was clearly all going to work. But one of the points of this podcast is to get inside the thinking of the time to understand why and how decisions were made so we can better assess things that we're involved in today. And one question I always like to ask is, were they confident in the start? And what was their expectation of how things were going to go? So we thought if we could get the campaign strategy right, that we would win it because of the sense of feeling that members were talking about on the ground. We knew the narrative around valuing teachers by paying them properly, giving teachers time to teach, and learning support were issues that were deeply felt across the membership. Because I think at the beginning of the campaign, we thought that maybe a day might do it, mm -hmm. or maybe two days might do it. But I, I think fundamentally, it was sort of a surprise, I guess, to the government that, that our members were so so staunch. The ministry played uh, a kind of a standard game where they come in with a low offer, expecting it to be rejected, and then come back with a slightly better offer that will be accepted. Because that's what had happened under nine years of national... And they were negotiating with nurses and with firemen, and you know there was a lot of collective agreements, negotiations coming up, and it was their first year in term, and which I understand all of that stuff. But I think, and we were fed up. Mm. We'd had enough. It always came back to the fact that it didn't matter who was in government, we needed to make a stand. The National Executive, as part of their organisational strategy, adopted a listen and learn approach with members. To build collective ownership of the campaign amongst teachers, they would have to respond and react rather than always setting the pace. This was really put to the test when the first ministry offer came in. An important local story, after two weeks of ballots around the country, primary school teachers and principals have voted to strike. Members of the Educational Institute have voted to stop work for three hours, just the three hours on August the 15th, and are discussing whether to strike for a full day subsequent. So all the union members obviously get that, get that offer via email, and it is just a yes or a no. There's no grey area. You either you accept the offer or you don't. Sometimes it's done at a paid union meeting, mm -hmm. and we vote yes or no by a ballot there right then and there. So if you're not there, your vote doesn't get counted, which is a great way of getting lots of people to a meeting. I mean, I've run meetings that were 400 people, 400 teachers. With votes involved? Yeah. Wow. So you have to have marshals, you had ballot people that were taking mm -hmm. all the counting and then they had to go to Wellington and boxes and um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We actually went to Elections NZ and, and had all the voting, all the ballots themselves done by an independent polling company because we wanted to, to say to our members, we take, these votes are really serious. Which is why we only took um, a half day strike action because we wanted to test the membership. We never wanted to be too far ahead of them. People were already riled up and were like ready to go because I think when we got the first offer and people were like, are you kidding me? 
Half day strike? No way, that doesn't cause enough chaos. There'd been a term break in, in, in July, August, and so what happened during that term break is that members got really active on social media and talked to each other, obviously, and basically came, you know, we basically got the message that actually they, they did want a full day strike. They were angry enough. And we talked about having to create that chaos in order to make change. And we talked about having to create that political pressure. You take all the teachers out of Auckland, 10,000 teachers, and you put them on a strike for a day, it makes an impact. Mm. It makes a bigger impact than a half day. It's just not worth it. And I remember talking with other, other member leaders as a result of those, because you're never sure if it's just your particular group of members in one part of the country but people were people were reporting similar themes coming through and so i think that was a really interesting test because it was a risk either way right it was a risk if we st if if the executive stuck with the half day and it was a risk if we read the signals wrong and went for a full day and nobody turned up but i think it was also really great because it meant that we really had to show that we were listening you know, the national executive have, had to go, yep, we're reconsidering this, we've heard what you've said, and we're going to change our minds. And that's quite unusual for union execs, I think, you know, to be publicly responsive. So that's where that's where the teacher voice mm -hmm. of the union is is amazing because, you know, you've got to think of the union as like a, as an upside-down triangle. Mm -hmm. The teachers are the biggest part, mm -hmm. and that's where the union gets its power and its voice from. National exec is down here. So all of that's got to filter down to national exec. It was also one of those things that grew our confidence that we weren't taking members into a space that they didn't want to go. Because we thought, oh, well, you know, people haven't taken industrial action for years, so they'll be quite nervous about this and maybe there won't be support for a full day action. But we were like, no way, uh-uh. Let's, let's do it, you know, we, were, we meant business mm. is what we wanted the, mm -hmm. the, everyone to know. Education Minister Chris Hipkins has just spoken in Parliament after primary teachers confirmed they will strike from Monday. The Ministry yesterday increased its offer for teachers at the top end of the pay scale, but the Teachers Union says the proposal is still not good enough. Mr Hipkins says he's disappointed with that response and fired a warning shock that going on strike won't get teachers any more money. This strike action comes despite the fact that the government has significantly increased its offer to primary teachers. So then we developed that process where rather than just put out what we're doing, it was like, okay, we're going to, this is what we're suggesting. We want your feedback on something. So we'd do that either through surveys or through page in your meetings or through, you know, all sorts of channels because we had lots of networks and things set up. And then we'd decide something and confirm it. It was really good that that happened right at the beginning on the first strike because it meant I think that our members f felt listened to and if if the union didn't listen to them you know when they'd had 10 years of the government not listening to them that would have been like you know terrible so The primary school teachers' strike is now officially underway. It's the first time they've walked off the job for more than 24 years. In Auckland, more than 10,000 teachers, parents and children marched to the length of Queen Street as part of a day-long strike that's forced the closure of almost all of the country's primary and intermediate schools. In total, more than 29,000 teachers have gone on strike.
principles to lead their schools and we absolutely need a significant pay job that attracts people into this profession. In Wellington, teachers and supporters made their way from Westpac Stadium to Parliament, where they were met by the Education Minister and the Prime Minister. This is about respecting your profession. We hear that. We will keep working with you. But in the meantime, thank you for what you do for all of us. It's the first primary school teachers strike in 24 years and only the fourth in history. But the union isn't ruling out further strikes. As Liam told us in the introduction, he was one of the lead negotiators for NZDI in this campaign. And he took us inside the room. Because after such a significant demonstration of power, passion and feeling, what do you actually say to each other? And as somebody who has sat on the teams for the last three rounds, I often get to the end of the days and think, how, how have we used that many hours? But the actual negotiations themselves end up being relatively cordial on the most part because there's, there is a sense from NZDI in particular that the people across the table, they're not the decision makers. They have got managers upon managers upon managers. And for that particular campaign itself, we knew that it was about shifting government, not about shifting the ministry. And so the negotiation teams were important for us to be able to tell the ministry the lived experience of classroom teachers and principals. So uh, you kind of go through waves, particularly early on, what you want to convey across the negotiating table is the lived experience of teachers. And so there is certainly that weight on your shoulders to do that properly and to be able to leave the negotiating table saying, saying to yourself that actually members would be really pleased with what we got over the table. But at the same time, there are also parts of the campaign where you actually felt really confident because you would have a terrible offer come back and negotiations had finished and we were at the point where, okay, we will go and take that back to our members. But given the messages members were telling you to take into the table and the offer that came back, there was a little bit of a, well, they're not gonna like this. And so there was certainly that excitement of the campaign knowing that you were gonna go back out to these large scale paid union meetings. And so there was a kind of wave all the way through of this consistent, overwhelming rejection of the votes. National Exec would get the results back in, there was that sense around, holy crap, this is great, they're up for it, let's keep cracking on. After that first one-day strike in August, the negotiations were referred to the Employment Relations Authority, the ERA, who act as mediators and try to facilitate an agreement between the union and the government. After a week of negotiation, on Thursday, November the 8th, the Ministry put forward another offer. The Employment Relations Authority has come down hard on the teachers' union and says its claim is completely unrealistic. It's urging the union to take the offer. I mean, the ERA recommendation, for example, was so over the top about how fabulous the ministry offer was that it was almost good for us. I mean, it just completely annoyed people. I mean, I don't know what the guy was thinking. That particular ruling was, you know, bizarrely kind of pro-government, really. We were like, nope, nope. We're not even that doesn't even that doesn't that doesn't even cover inflation since our last our last pay rise. Mm. It doesn't it doesn't tell us it doesn't solve any of our problems. There was no going back. We were like, we've got to make change. Because we were all, you know, like nearly twenty years in the job and I was at breaking point mm. because of the lack of teachers and and the 
the fact that we weren't being seen or paid our worth mm. just kind of compounded all of that work. You know, I'm going home and making up resources for kids that I don't have funding for. You know, why am I doing that? Oh, cause it's because I'm a good teacher. Mm. It's because I love my job like everybody else that is a teacher. So we do it for the children. And we kept coming back to the fact that we needed to look at our profession in a bigger picture than, than just ourselves. Mm. I mean, they've had no experience of the ERA. Like, we haven't been on, you know, they hadn't been on strike for 20 years. I mean, their attitude would have been, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what the teacher shortage looks like on the ground. It was that wave of everyone was getting together. Everyone was unifying for this cause. And everyone believed in it because they were, especially the teachers, you know, we're on the coalface. We, we, we live and breathe this every single day. We had the option to go back and challenge that, but we felt that we were just in different ballparks between members and parents' expectations. And so from our thinking, it was so bad that it's not even worth trying to argue with. We would just release it out to the members and say, look, we've gone and jumped through this ERA hoop. We engage in it in good faith, but it's not even close. What do you want to do about it? Primary teachers and principals ditched their classrooms and hit the streets in Auckland today, kicking off a week of rolling strike action. More than 300 schools in the region closed and 100,000 students were at home for the day. The strikes come despite an improved offer from the Education Ministry and strong criticism from the Employment Relations Authority. Katie Scotcher reports. Trish Hadfield, who's a resource teacher, says she's disappointed they have to strike again. It's really important that our message is heard and the negotiations with what the government's come back with is just not going to fix the problem. Look, I've been involved in international education and there are thousands of New Zealand teachers who are overseas and that's because here they found undervalued, underpaid and overworked. This offer is not going to change that tide. The Education Minister Chris Hipkins says no more money will be put on the table for teachers. Justin Barlow, who teaches Year 6 children, says the rolling strike action is justified. The last big strike we had addressing these types of things was 24 years ago. It's not like we're asking every year or every second year. It's just come to a big head. Doing a series of rolling strikes across the country, where on each day a different region was out, is a really smart tactic. Because if what you need to shift a decision maker is to create a sense of ongoing crisis, a crisis that can only be resolved by them doing what you want them to, then major media stories with disruptive strike events, powerful stories and testimonies from overworked and fed up organized teachers appearing day after day after day is exactly the type of crisis you want to create. There's a famous quote attributed to Saul Alinsky, the well-known US community organizer, and he said, a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag which basically means if you do the same thing again and again, people get used to it. And so even though teachers striking is a huge story and a really significant event, they'd already done a one-day strike before, so they need to do something different. Escalation doesn't always have to just mean bigger numbers, more spectacular. It's about the outcome of your tactic, which you want to be more pressure on the decision maker and more power and momentum for your campaign. And here it was the same thing for each teacher, just another one-day strike less disruption to parents and kids, the same amount of work that they've already done before, but nationally, as an entire campaign, it was a whole week of strikes, day after day after day. Stephanie couldn't remember exactly where this idea came from, but nevertheless... 
Well, I always think that, you know, good ideas are always shared ideas. You know, like even if you're you're the person who has a spark of an original idea, whether it's at a big strategic level or at a like at a tactical level, it can always be improved with other people's input. I mean, members come up with lots of different ideas. Oh, we could do it, you know, Nelson could do it on a Monday and Christ could, could do it on a Tuesday or whatever, you know. Or, I mean, there were all sorts of things that come up. It's not like we said 40,000 teachers do X and they all did, yep, we'll do X. Usually in strike campaigns, as you move from one strike to the next, and better and better offers keep getting offered to you, you inevitably lose some people along the way who think an offer is good enough or don't believe they can get better or who are just fed up of striking and campaigning or for many other reasons. But that didn't really happen in Kua Tai Tawa. I did a kind of analysis of all the votes that got taken over that 18-month period and we had a, just a consistently high turnout and a consistently high and consistent vote, which is really incredible. But I think... That was also because we had amazing member leaders, you know, who who were prepared to tell their stories publicly. Amazing member leaders who ran meetings, who ran networks. But the whole point of it was to get to a point where if we had a paid junior meeting or if we had a, you know, any kind of public meeting, that teachers could confidently, you know, front the meeting, run anything, you know. But then we started doing other things along the way, like Facebook Lives and Q&As, because we realised that the most effective way of dealing with the social media chatter was to get the negotiating team in front of members responding to questions directly. Welcome to our um, Ask Me Anything here at um, NZDI about the primary teacher and the principal pumps. We are looking really forward to going back into that negotiating room with the Minister of Education and actually talking about your views, what we've heard from our members, that yeah. strong resolve from principals and teachers. So it's lovely to um, to be talking with you all. What we want to do for the next little while is just to, um, to sort of answer a few of your questions that might come through around the overwhelming reject offer that we've had on the primary teachers and principals agreement and where to from here. Allowed us to bring those those strong member leader voices who, who wanted to chew down on this, uh, a space that wasn't as public. And you could actually control the tone of the conversations and get them a lot more focused on strategy. Mm. But it's fair to say that across the membership, there was a diverse view of opinions around what effective mm. campaigning looks like. I mean, I think it's totally about our conception of organising unionism, that it's it's always about empowering and scaffolding and supporting members to do their thing. And, and you can see how, how members grew in their capacity. This is a really, really important distinction that it's worth reinforcing. It's exactly the type of union organising that people like Jane McAlevey talk about as being essential to really building the power of unions to help construct a better society. In places like Chicago, where McAlevey has written about, teacher unions and member leaders have gone on to become local politicians, initiating a citywide movement for social and economic justice. And it started with this type of strategy. As Liam said, if it was just about his clever words or some kind of complicated strategy from the leadership that won the contract, teachers would be no better off in the long term because future governments could just reimpose worse systems and teachers wouldn't have the capacity to resist. It's what Simon said they probably didn't do enough of during the Supersize My Pay campaign that we talked about in episode one. For Carly, who is a member leader and responsible for running those paid union meetings, it could be quite the job, trying to keep focused on the objective of the campaign and the strategy that it all signed up to. 
Any listeners out there who facilitated a meeting themselves will feel her pain in trying to keep things on track. And it depends on where you run them in Auckland, depending on what their bugbears are (laughs) and how you channel that energy back into the bigger picture. Because it's really easy in a big in a big group or even in your staff room to have your own voice and worry about you mm-hmm. and you want to be heard they want to voice your opinions cool great so what you're saying is you're overworked is that is that the crux of the matter mm-hmm. okay cool it was really clear for those leaders and for those people that were putting the word out there that you had to keep fr- reframing what people were trying to say so the message was clear and not jumbled and it didn't become all about me and my problems, even though there were personal stories to be heard. So the dynamics of running a meeting with all those teacher voice is it's, it's nothing like you could imagine. So it's keeping people on track in order to get the message across, in order to see the pros and cons and have those conversations. And they're not easy to have. So far, so good then. Two offers, two clear rejections for the membership, with participation and turnout consistently high and two successful strike actions. But as the end of 2018 neared, with the school break, Christmas, parliamentary recess and summer on the horizon, they were worried that they would see some of that common decline in momentum. Yeah, towards the end of 2018, things just kind of felt like they'd come to a standstill and we thought that the government would kind of step in sooner than it did, I think, really. And it felt like, gosh, you know, we're going to have to wind this all up again at the beginning of 2019. I mean, it did did feel like quite a long period then. And we know that for our members, that those first few weeks at the beginning, at the start of a school year, are when teachers are like getting to know their new classes, the new kids, you know, there's a lot of set up stuff and we couldn't call them out in the first, you know, in February. We were also aware of member leader burnout as well. And so Hmm. in some ways we actually wanted to tell people, look, go and have your break. Trust me, these issues will be there when we come back. But as it turns out, the discontent was so strong and so widespread and the strategy of deep engagement and mass participation was working. And so the momentum sustained itself. At the end of the year, schools started to like decorate their fences with its time core taitiwa paraphernalia. And so we had all these organically created social media images coming up of schools wanting to send their message over the Christmas break. But mm. because we were building that sense of ownership and responsibility at local levels. People were um, starting to really re-engage in the conversations right from the kind of start to middle of January. So this, you know, this We Back the Teachers thing that started on Facebook, which none of us knew anybody, it just happened. And Oh, that was totally organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, no, that is not an AstroTurf group. Well, That's a whole bunch of parents we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they knew, they obviously knew some teachers, you know, and they were friends with some teachers and, and some of them, you know, like a lot of teachers are parents too. So it's not like there is a Venn diagram where there's a bit of overlap there. But yeah, no, that was, that was great. You know, in spite of the fact that obviously the page union meetings and the rolling strikes and so on had an impact in terms of shutting schools, we got virtually no negative feedback from parents. In March of 2019, New Zealand and Christchurch was hit by the racist, white supremacist mosque attacks, which tragically killed 51 people. The campaign obviously called off a whole series of meetings and events, and waited for the dust to settle in its aftermath, and some kind of mourning process to eventuate, before they returned to their negotiations in the campaign. 
what had happened inside the campaign just before March were the first serious signs that taking industrial action with the PPTA, the secondary teaching unions, was definitely going to happen. As we've heard, this was always a possibility that they'd hoped to fulfil, but nevertheless, it still took a lot of work to pull off. And I remember going to the planning meeting in Palmerston North and uh, there was about five from NZDI and five from PPTA and just the sharing of ideas back and forward around who are the kind of speakers we should be getting on, how do we ensure that, that it's a primary message and a secondary message. And there was some, there was some real excitement there around talking to people that were just as passionate about education but came at it from a completely different angle. There was a lot of excitement around, this is going to be huge. You know, it's, it's still a simple organising proposition that strengthens the numbers. I mean, it's, it's always hard work, you know. It's day by day, talking to people, conversation after conversation, making sure that people, from both a practical point of view and also from a kind of motivational point of view, why they want to be there and how they're going to get there. And... But even with something so historic, impactful and proactive, there was still one extra sprinkle of strategic gold dust to add to try to maximise the pressure that it was putting the decision maker under. The date for the joint strike action, May the 29th, was the day before the Labour-led government's scheduled announcement of its budget. And it wasn't just any old budget, but a much publicised and well-trailed well-being budget, which the government planned to signal as a paradigm shift in the way that budgets were made. Choosing the day before for the strike would crystallise even more for people the stark under-resourcing in the education sector. Because it, that kind of puts the, the focus on how is the government spending the money. But I think because both the well-being of children and the well-being of the adults that teach them was so sort of central to the it's time kind of theme that, that it kind of made double sense. We were reasonably confident that our members were solid. We knew that for the public, for parents, for political leaders, seeing the entire schooling sector on the street was going to be pretty massive. You know, sometimes you get that feeling that the wave is going forward and everybody's actually got their surfboards lined up, you know, they're not falling off or left their wetsuit at home or anything like that. They're actually like, yep, we're all ready to go here. You know, it was a culmination of more than a year of, of people on the streets, really, and taking action, whether that was, you know, petitions at their market or events outside their school or barbecues after school or, you know, other strike days and so on. We were putting it all out there, you know, putting us and the secondary school's teachers together in one mega strike was the biggest manoeuvre in terms of unionising that this country's seen for a very long time. We haven't done something like this for 24 long years. We've had 10 years under a government that has created neglect, under-resourcing, undervaluing of our sector. I suppose we've all heard that, you know, this is a very sympathetic government and they keep saying that, yes, we're very valuable. Are they waiting for a rainy day? Well, guess what? It's bloody raining now. Nearly 50 protests took place around the country from Northland. Gosh, it's good to hear the support. Did you hear that, Mr Hipkins? Did you hear it? You should be listening in Wellington. To the south. This time, they do need to listen. 
to hear very clearly. We need time to teach. We need time to lead. We need support for our learning needs children so that we can stay in the game and we can love the profession we love. Yep, I was marching with my kids and various parent friends and, you know, saying hi to everybody and enjoying myself mainly, yeah. I ended up in Tauranga. I was speaking at their rally uh, and that there was a sense of excitement around teachers doing what they do well around creating these like, really cool signs. I just thought, man, I'm going to have such a cool photo collection of just these hilarious signs coming through. And then also realising the huge amount of support other unions were giving us, like every union had their flags there. And so I was at the front of that, and you could just never see the end of the line. I was actually chosen to be the teacher speaker on behalf of the primary school teachers here in Auckland. I will never forget standing on the podium and this police officer tapping on my shoulder and saying, you need to tell everyone to move over. I was like, what do you mean, move over? He said, well, there's still more people out in Queen Street. I said, so are you telling me Aotea Square is almost full? He says, yes, so you're at, you know, we're nearly at capacity. I nearly, I nearly fell over and ran away. Um, <laughs> and so that momentum of just us, which was amazing. It was, it was sensational. Yeah, I mean, I've just got these amazing memories of turning back. And I remember because it was um, a residential street as well, that you would see people in the community, they were sitting out in front of their houses with a cup of tea and a seat and a book, like we were a parade coming by. And they were sitting there going, yeah, keep it going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had to present a speech. So I had to tell my story to I don't even know how many people there were, too many to even count. It was just, it was crazy. And because you needed it to, it needed to be short, it needed to pack a punch, and it needed to hit hard. It was really hard to write. And it was really nerve-wracking. I don't think I've ever been that nervous in my whole life. But my school knew that I was speaking, and so they'd managed to get there quite early and they were right all, almost all on the corner and at the front. So I could see my boss standing just out of my eyesight. And every time I kind of took a big breath and went, mm. <laughs> um, I could see him and I could see my mum and my dad, they were both there too. Put your hands in the air and let me hear you if you are angry and frustrated at your day-to-day -day reality. And so that was something that was just, it was, it was momentous. You'll never, we'll never experience anything like that again in our lifetime. It was, um, yeah, it was awesome. In Auckland, they started early, parents joining the march down Queen Street. For me, this is not just a crisis for teachers, it's a crisis for our kids. One of the largest here in Wellington, the march stretches for several hundred metres, shutting down the central city. And firing up when the education minister came out. you want more progress and you want it to be faster and I cannot offer you that. Why is a Labour education minister staring down the barrel of the greatest strike in New Zealand's history? 
Well, I mean, ultimately, I guess that's a question that you should ask the teacher unions. Um, you know, the, the offer that we've put on the table for unions this, this round is worth more than all of the offers uh, that they received under the last government put together. It's a $1.2 billion offer. Now, we've been very clear that there, there won't be any further movement from the government. This government can only afford $1.2 billion and, unfortunately, the teachers, um, quite frankly, they don't believe us. This is my staff from Western Heights School in Henderson. So are you the principal? Deputy principal, deputy principal, deputy of, principal yeah. incredibly hard work. Actually, it's only a few of them, but yeah. And there's some youngsters standing around you. All our teachers are young. Old teachers don't last, I'm sorry. I'm the last of the old ones standing. So two questions. How are you attracting the young ones when the pay is... That's the problem. We've stood outside and we've protested on our street and we've had electricians and so on yell out the window, why don't you just get a new job if you don't like it? Hello, mister, that's exactly what's happening. I've had teachers leaving next year to go back to Australia. I've got teachers picking up international school jobs in Singapore. They can't afford to teach in New Zealand anymore, not in Auckland anyway. They can't afford to live here. Teachers want action now, saying there'll be more scenes like this if their concerns aren't addressed. I mean, I think, I think at that point you sort of think, have we done enough? I always say to people, you've got a plan for a month beyond your success at least so that you can work out what you didn't win and what you're going to do about it and also how you celebrate. So it always seems to me when you get big wins, you can also get big losses. It's almost like it's a, you hand the ball back to the other side. And so we got to the end of the day and there was a lot of eyes on what's going to be the response from government as a result of this. And there was that sense around, at least internally within NZDI, that um, this is a membership that is, that is furious. They will continue to go. And the votes on the offers were just so consistent that we thought, well, there's still more petrol in the tank. We had about a week. And so what I did is I, as soon as the offer came through, I played the video to everybody at Morning Tea. And I said, according to me and my understanding, this is a really good offer. Mm. I don't think there's I don't think there's any more room. I mean I think that the accord, that working part of our collective agreement, which is still ongoing now, was a really essential part of that collective agreement going through mm. because not all our concerns were addressed in that last lot of negotiations. That's how we did it. We shared it, the video, we talked about it. And yeah, there, there were some people that thought we should go for more. And I said, well, that's, that's completely up to you. Yeah, I said, yeah. but my opinion is this is as good as it's going to get. Right. I had a few really robust discussions about people that didn't think it was good enough. And I, I said, so what would your number be? So you're telling me that I should be being paid more than a, te- a, a, a principal at a two or three teacher school. Is that what? Because that's the equivalent mm. of what we're dealing with here. Mm. I said it's it's a bigger picture than that. Can you can ha, have most of our concerns been addressed? Mm. And the answer was always yes. Morena Koto, Namahinuikia Koto, and um, thanks for for being with us this morning. So um, we have some long-awaited news for some of you, for all of you. Um, so primary teachers have resoundingly voted to ratify the proposed settlement from the Ministry of Education. There were lots of issues that weren't 
resolved through the collective agreement and some of them can't be easily resolved through bargaining. Some of the system systemic issues we've got. And I think we would all agree from our end that we're not satisfied with the progress that's been made since those negotiations, but there has been some progress in some areas. So, and that'll be for members to judge when we start the process, actually in a couple of months, going back to them and going, okay, so... Right, we're back into negotiation sometime in 2022. Your, your collective expires. What do you want? What's What are the things that we really need to, to get to grips with? And so there is still a really severe bubbling going along, along the way of members. You know, in some ways you get, you're always planning the next piece because, yeah, you're never done, right? Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's fine. Nevertheless, the campaign did achieve a huge amount. And so two years on, why were they able to do that? Obviously, there isn't just one reason, but clearly the two unions working together. It was an absolute needs must, but it put the icing on the cake, I think, because I don't think either of us would have got what we got without one another. We could still be negotiating now. <laughs> We started to engage members at the right time in the power cycle. And so, for example, if I think about right now, housing and health tend to be really major issues on the mind of people in society. And so timing your campaign uh, where you can um, get to that crest of power that you can create, uh, I think is really important. We just, we, we really prioritised members speaking for themselves and members engaging with other members to get things done and having having really strong networks and, and strong works like rep support it really did galvanise and engage members and they really took it on themselves. You know, that it was very much their stories front and centre. I think speaking from your story is the most important thing that people want to hear speaking from your experiences and and being a voice for people that are unable or unwilling to express what's going on for them is really uh, a privilege and if you get that if you get that opportunity you should take it with two hands there I don't think you can put um, enough investment resourcing and support in to the focus of developing member leaders that I can't understate the power of a colleague talking to another colleague about a campaign or an issue as opposed to somebody from the union. About halfway through the campaign, we were doing sort of joint briefings of member leaders and staff, field staff together. So that was kind of how close it was really, that, that kind of partnership between member leaders and, and organisers is really strong. I thought the escalation strategy in hindsight uh, was 100% the right thing because we knew that this was going to take a while to shift governments because of the election. Mm. And I guess probably the other pivotal thing for us was, was that really honest analysis of our own membership structures and current activist base right at the beginning of the campaign. We weren't, we, we weren't caught short relying on power that we mm. didn't have. Mm. We recognised our weaknesses and through the, through the strategy... And had tactics in place along the way to to deal with the weaknesses of the organisation. You know, that power of a clear message, a strategic campaign, 
and the power of people makes all the difference. One of the main reasons to have a strategy of trade unionism that focuses on organising is that it means you can achieve the three objectives of strategic campaigns. You win a concrete demand, you build the capacity, skills and experience of your members and develop their understanding of their own power, and thirdly, you build your organisation. And all these three things mean that once you've won improvements in one area, as a collective you can move on to improving the next thing. That's what power is, the ability to affect things in the real world by acting together. So what does that feel like? To have made that change, shifted a government by working with your colleagues and friends? I think it was a real sense of accomplishment. If everybody was on a real high and really positive about what we'd done together, and there was definitely celebration, you know, in the staff room, people's moods were different. That was really momentous. Mm-hmm. And because it had been such a long campaign, so long, and that we were able to just keep that momentum going to get that collective agreement, it was just like almost a sigh of relief. And this, oh, okay, great, we don't have to go on strike again. <laughs> Excellent. Things may take a long time to change like that kind of lots of drops of water on a stone but then when you get that momentum it is about really seizing that and you know making sure everybody's on board and I guess the other the other side of it is that I hate the theology that you can only do unionism in a certain way you can only be organizing or you can only be servicing or you can only, you can't do mobilization you've got to be organizing and blah 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 it does my head in like we have to do all these things and we have to do all of them well. We owe it to our members, you know. One thing personally that being involved in this podcast has made me realise is, is that I never actually spent any time taking stock of what we did over those two years. When I think about it is, is that we've given a generation of educators and experience around actually you don't just have to be beholden to the government of the day that actually we're, we're in a society where there are structures for you to have your voice and have your say. And if you do that right and you're talking about the right issues, then it can lead to action. It's just really important that I think that our story is told. Mm. My reality of running a classroom in midst of all of this was one of the reasons why I do it, but also for the, for the, bigger, the bigger picture, you know, the, the longevity of the profession is something that we need to do more of in this country over and above what's right for education because because collective power does lead to action. When I started teaching, I didn't have any teacher release. I didn't have a mentor teacher. We have all of that to thank because of the union. So, you know, the union has power to change, but also has the power to listen to our voices, which is amazing can be frustrating because it takes a long time you know that process and people can get frustrated by it but you just got to look at the bigger picture and our current thinking is is that if government doesn't want to deal with this properly that that members will get get up to that point very very quickly again around the lack of funding coming into primary and so we get to do kuataitawa (laughs) 2.0 
that's all for episode six. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please send it to a friend and ask them to listen to it. More subscribers means we appear higher in the charts, which means more people will find these stories and insights. And then soon enough, we'll be a country filled with strategic campaigners winning things left, right and centre. I'm kidding, kind of. As I said at the start, we're going to take a short break. For those of you keen listeners, you'll notice this episode was a little bit late coming out because it takes a while to put them together and we want to include multiple voices and perspectives on each story that we're telling. We've got seven episodes in production and should be on track to start Series 2 in the beginning of June. In the meantime, keep listening to the weekly 1 of 200 main cast. They're getting some amazing guests recently which offer a left-wing analysis of the news you can't really find anywhere else. Kia kaha.